This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 385. This podcast episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. Created by leading scientists, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. Thanks also to Tonry Outdoors, makers of clean sun care products like mineral sunscreen and their After Sun Restorative Moisturizer. It's sun protection made for runners by runners. Just visit Tonry, that's T-A-N-R-I, Tonry.com to learn more. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we explain how long distance running is an exercise in self-leadership. You'll hear how to take control of your thoughts, influence your emotions, and discipline your body to accomplish your running and fitness goals. Lots of good stuff. And of course, as an Academy member, you can get access to all of our back podcast episodes, training plans, courses, and more. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Well, in a few days, we are actually uh, going on a big trip, flying to Europe with our kids. Uh, and for about a month, we'll be road tripping in Spain, France, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, Hungary, and Italy. We've got some races planned over there. Um, follow us on Instagram to see photos from our road trip. We're at Marathon Academy. Hard to plan for a big trip like this. We've been looking at the weather. Angie, I think once we hit Spain, it'll be, uh, we're flying into Madrid. It'll be over 100 degrees. Yes, that sounds miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no one said it was supposed to be fun. Really? (laughs) (laughs) No, it'll be great. Never been to Spain. Looking forward to being there. We'll be in Madrid a couple days and then boom, go into the coast. Get some of that nice Mediterranean breeze. Staying at an Airbnb with no air conditioning. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So, Angie, what's going on out there? Uh, we want to read some shout-outs from folks in our community before we jump into the feature segment on this episode. That's right. We got this nice note from Parker in the Academy. He says, Angie and Trevor and Coach Henry, you were right. I do have what it takes to run a marathon and change my life. I completed my first marathon at Revel Rockies and with the help of MTA Coach Henry achieved my A goal of sub five hour race with a time of 4.54.48. I turned on my release the Kraken playlist for the last 10K and powered through for a fast finish. I'm officially a marathoner now and I'm hooked. I've already signed up for the Richmond Marathon this November. Thank you for creating such an amazing community and encouraging us to do hard things. Hopefully I'll see some MTA members in Richmond. Always fun to hear about that first marathon. Congrats, Parker. On conquering the distance, going sub five hours, you did it. Yes, for sure. This comes from Kristen. She says, another marathon down with the Coeur d'Alene Marathon. I may have two heart murmurs, small kidneys, and asthma, but I did it. I was also so slow that the only people I passed were walking, but a win is a win. That's right. If you cross the finish line, it is a win. This comes from Yali, who is a member of the Academy as well, and I wanted to share her recent race report because I felt it really ties in well to this episode, talking about the idea of growth through doing hard things and challenges. 
And she says, I recently ran the Jim Thorpe Running Festival in Pennsylvania with a goal of a Boston qualifying time. The course starts at around 1,300 feet of elevation and winds its way down a rolling descent next to the Lehigh River. Absolutely stunning views during the entire race. I had an incredible training block with my MTA coach, Chris, who has been guiding me patiently and keeping me accountable since January. I was hitting paces and milestones that I could not have imagined, and I ran a half PR during my training. I was ready, and we both knew it. Then came race morning with the gift of 100% humidity. Welcome to Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yes. My legs felt strong, but my lungs and GI tract started screaming at me from mile four. The pain was so acute at times that I wondered if I needed to DNF. I kept on pace for 10 miles, and then I couldn't keep down gels, and I had to stop at every aid station to drink and pour water on myself. At one point, I knew a BQ wasn't in the cards, so I switched to my C and D goals of a PR and a finish. I kept telling myself, you are growing as long as you are going, and this is just another hard thing, and you've done a lot of hard things. What's one more? I like it. I am so proud of the race I ran, despite internal and external conditions. As I was driving home, I felt relief and gratitude. Gratitude to my coach, to this community, to my family who sent me positive energy from home, and to this miracle of another marathon done in a resilient mind and strong body. I finished in 3 hours, 48 minutes, and 18 seconds. Not a BQ, but a PR of just over 2 minutes. Nice. I'll take it. We grow from our challenges so that we can bask in our successes. I will try again and one day celebrate the A goal well earned. Love how she says that. That comes from Yali. Thank you for sharing that race report. And I can see why she was successful. You know, had sounds like had a good training leading up, but also had the right mindset going into a challenging day. That's how you do it. That's right. And that, of course, is self-leadership. And uh, this whole episode is going to be about how running is an exercise in self-leadership and what that means So let's get started with our uh, self-leadership episode. So one summer, I chose to sign up for the Continental Divide 50K in Montana. It was my first ultra. It was challenging. It goes along the Continental Divide Trail near Butte, Montana. And after about 25 miles, I found myself out of water and uh, just hot and exhausted. I had to cross underneath a fallen tree that had covered over the trail. And as I was crawling under the tree, the ground felt so comfortable. (laughs) And my... (laughs) My head felt so heavy, so I just rested for a couple minutes under the nice shade of that tree on the ground, hoping that no one would come along and see me. (laughs) But while I was laying there, I thought to myself, hmm, what choices in life have I made to end up here? (laughs) But I did finish, and I wasn't dead freaking last. And it is all about putting yourself in a process that will force you into situations where you got to see what you're made of. You got to dig deep. That's what self-leadership is. And the big idea we want to impress upon you with this episode is that as a long-distance runner, you're doing this for more than just to get healthier physically. It's also a journey of self-discovery and self-discipline and self-leadership. Andrew Bryant defines self-leadership as the practice of intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling, and actions toward your objectives. The term self-leadership was actually coined by Charles Manns 
in uh, 1983. He defined it as a comprehensive self-influence perspective that concerns leading oneself toward performance of naturally motivating tasks, as well as managing oneself to do work that must be done but is not naturally motivating. So in both of these definitions, they use the word influence. Leadership is having influence on others, but you also, through self-leadership, influence your own mind, your own heart, and as you're getting healthier, you're influencing, of course, your body. So we're gonna cover those three aspects of self-leadership in this episode, mind, heart, and body. It reminds me of when I signed up for my first half marathon in 2011. I was not a runner before then. I actually hated to run. I think I, uh, if I remember right, I got an F and PE in ninth grade because I refused to run the mandatory state mile in California. <laughs> when I started running, thanks to inspiration from Angie, the question I was pursuing is, can I learn to love what I hate? Can I influence myself, change my emotions, my attitude, my thoughts? Can I learn to love what I hate? And the answer is yes, you can learn to love something that is now just tolerable or uncomfortable. And I honestly wondered after you completed that first half marathon, if you would ever go on to do a full marathon because it was tough on your body. Yeah. We'll put that out there. You said you felt like you had had your feet slapped with boat oars. Yes. That was my descriptive way of explaining <laughs> that it hurt to walk. <laughs> but uh, for some reason, I forgot all that and signed up for a full marathon. And that's that's the trick, folks. You just got to keep forgetting how bad it hurts <laughs> and keep signing up for more. Let's talk about leading the mind. In 12 years of doing this show, people have asked me, who are some of the top guests that you've had? And one person that has always fascinated me is the uh, South African researcher and scientist, Dr. Tim Noakes. He's author of the book, The Lore of Running, and he has something called the Central Governor Model of Fatigue. So Dr. Noakes says, when I started in the sports sciences, we were taught as dogma that if you're tired, it's because your muscles produce too much lactic acid. The lactic acid then poisons the muscles so you can't go any faster. Then some of my colleagues found that fatigue is purely a sensation, an emotion. It has nothing to do with what's actually happening in your body, and it has lots to do with how close you are to the finish line of a race. So the brain, he says, uses the emotion of fatigue to keep you within a safe pace as you run your marathon or ultra marathon or whatever it is. So the central governor theory is that your brain is the governor that slows down your body, not because you don't have energy reserves in your muscles. You have the muscle glycogen on board, but the brain is doing it in order to keep you alive or what it thinks is keep you alive because it's an old survival instinct of conserving resources, keeping you in homeostasis. Self-preservation. Exactly. And Noakes says one of the biggest evidences of this is that even if we're tired, we can still manage to kick it at the end when we see the finishing line. We have the you know famous finisher's kick when the finish line is near. So you're totally exhausted and your brain's telling you, man, you have nothing left to give. But then you see the finish line and somehow you do have something left. The brain's just been hiding it from you to try to slow you down, keep your heart rate under control, make sure you don't overheat, make sure you don't die. So he says the brain should be able to recruit more muscle anytime, but for some reason it chooses not to until the end when the athlete gets close to the finish line. So his big takeaway and, and breakthrough back in the day was discovering that fatigue is mostly a sensation created by the brain to conserve energy. It's really fascinating. Look it up. It's called the central governor theory. And the implication is, is that our brain literally creates the reality it wants us to feel. And this reality might not square with the actual facts of the physiology in your muscles. 
So after we interviewed Dr. Noakes and I read that chapter in The Lore of Running, I actually experimented at the New Orleans Rock and Roll Marathon in New Orleans, Louisiana. And so I think from mile 21, I just kept telling myself, it's all in my head. It's just all in my head. I just keep repeating that. And it actually helped. It helped me not to stop and walk. That's a great mantra. And I think a lot of listeners will relate because I know I've I've experienced this. I feel better at mile 26 or at the finish line than I did at mile 22. It's just amazing how, you know, knowing that you're that close just helps you tap into those reserves. And suddenly you find that you're, you're able to just propel yourself a little bit faster. And that rush of endorphins often happens. Whereas, you know, mile 22 or whatever the miserable mile is for you, (laughs) you often feel like, oh, If you gave me enough money right now, I might just quit. (laughs) So ask yourself the question, am I really tired or is it my brain just telling me I'm tired in order to conserve energy? And maybe it's both. Yeah. You know, it's not an either or proposition, but you can influence your mind to reduce that sensation of fatigue to make it more manageable. And our brains, always trying to stay ahead of us, are sometimes creating the sensation of pain to get us to slow down. I remember when we had our friend Eric Strand on the podcast after he ran his first 100-mile ultra at the Leadville Trail 100, which is something he does every year now, but he said he felt rolling pain, like his feet would hurt, and he just ignored the pain, and then pretty soon it was his shins, and then like he kept, he just ignored that, and his body's like, okay, how about your knees? <laughs> And his knees would hurt and it would just roll around his body and he just kept ignoring it. So it's almost like the brain says, okay, buddy, uh, you're not going to listen to this pain. Let me try that foot. Let me try. Weirdest thing I ever heard of was like someone getting cramps in their forearms when they ran. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess if you're tensing your arms and your shoulders, it's transferring that energy eventually down to your forearms. Keep like pumping the air. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) So it appears that you can create a new reality. Your brain is doing this already in ways that you don't want, right? It's telling you that you're more tired than you are, according to the central governor theory. So if you can create a a reality, why not create in your mind a vision of yourself as a healthy, goal-oriented person who lives their life to the fullest? Someone once said a goal is simply a dream acted upon. So you dream it, and then your brain can go to work creating the reality that you were dreaming of. There's an interesting book called How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big by the uh, the author and cartoonist Scott Adams. And he studied hypnotism bef- before he became a cartoonist. And he's famous for the Dilbert uh, cartoon strip. He, he has something called the moist robot hypothesis. He says your brain is like a computer that you can program. And well, what is the programming of the brain? Well, our brains run along these tracks of cognitive biases, shortcuts, and heuristics. That's sort of the default programming of the brain. So you can actually kind of use this stuff to hack your own psychology to produce the behavior you want to produce. He calls it the moist robot hypothesis. You're you're a robot with skin. <laughs> but think about this. Think about this, Angie. I saw this on Facebook the other day. The brain is the only part of the body that discovered and named itself. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one for you, Angie. When you brush your teeth, that's the only time you clean your skeleton. Think about it. Hopefully it's the only time. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you have a deep, deep wound. (laughs) Yeah. So another thing I want to talk about is happy chemicals. We know that thought patterns can release cortisol, which is a stress hormone, or serotonin, which is that happy, good feeling hormone. There's a book I read uh, last year called Relentless Solution Focus by Dr. Jason Selk. 
And he argues that there's two ways people handle problems. There is a problem-centric model and then a solution-centric. And what does our brain go to? What's the first response? Problem-centric thinking triggers cortisol, that fight-or-flight response, uh, and things just tend to spiral. Your mood is brought down, your thoughts get darker. Whereas solution-focused thinking, he says, releases serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and these neurotransmitters light up in the brain and give us these happy feelings. Which makes a lot of sense because often that problem-centric thinking is triggered by the amygdala, which is really that primitive part of our brain that is supposed to keep us alive. And so that's often triggered first, but then the more the higher centers of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, we can kind of flip the script and start to think about the solution focused instead. Yeah, he says, okay, if you have negative thoughts, there's a problem that presents itself. Um, allow yourself, uh, I think he says 30 seconds to think about it and just feel it. Maybe maybe it's 60 seconds. Acknowledge the feelings, acknowledge it's there, but don't let more than 60 seconds lapse until you think of a solution. So the idea the solution-centric thinking is to be able to quickly transition in your mind to those happy chemicals, to thinking about, okay, what would make the situation better? So how would you use that when you're out running? You might have some negative thoughts along the race. It's, you know, most of us do. Yeah, I was going to say, you will have negative thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that email that we read from Yali, and, and she said it so well. Um, you know, she's out there, the humidity just sucks. She has this GI tract issue starting from mile four, and her pace, she knew she wasn't going to hit her BQ. So what solution did she come up with? Well, from the email, she kept telling herself, you were growing as long as you were going. And this is just another hard thing. You've done lots of hard things. What's one more? So that would be an example of solution-centric thinking. So the quicker you can shift to that, the easier it's going to be getting through those tough moments. Talking about running as self-leadership, how to influence your own mind. In the book Endure by Alex Hutchinson, another very interesting scientist we have on the podcast, uh, he shares a study from the University of Wales in which cyclists were shown happy faces and some cyclists were shown sad faces. And you know what I'm going to say next, right? The people that viewed the happy faces were able to outlast the other group. And the cool thing in both of those tests was that people who were shown the happy faces not only rode longer, but they also reported a lower feeling of effort. So it felt easier to them, which has great payoffs in the world of long distance running. <laughs> Angie, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of like a positive mantra that you used to shift your thinking and get through a tough patch in a marathon. Wow. I think it definitely has changed and evolved over the years. And sometimes it's very specific to the race. Like something will stick in my mind. A song will stick in my mind, like a snippet of a song. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important to like go with, you know, how you're being led during that particular moment. But I know one that I go back to a lot is I can do hard things. Um, another one I've used is strong legs, tough mind, open heart. Yeah. Just kind of focusing on how I want to see myself, how I want to show up in the world and during the race. Another trick that will help you influence your mind and your psychology is visualization. You know, our brains cannot distinguish between what we see with our eyes and what we visualize with our minds. It's pretty amazing. And this is in the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Uh, they say scientists took MRI scans of people watching a sunset 
and they compared them to people who were just visualizing a sunset in their minds, and the same regions of the brain were activated in both groups. So visualization is a way to practice a routine, a plan, or a behavior solely in your mind. You could be just lying on the couch and benefit from this practice. In fact, there was a guy who was imprisoned by the Soviets way back in the day. His name was Natan Saransky. And he kept his mind sharp by playing chess against himself in his imagination. Something I could not do. I can't even play chess in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, I've tried to teach Angie. She has resisted my efforts. (laughs) She doesn't like board games. So anyway, this dude, Natan Saransky... Okay, true story, you should Google it if you want to. Played chess in his mind, in his imagination, and after he was released, he went on and he beat Gary Kasparov in a legit match. So the subject of visualization fits nicely with something else that I read by Dr. Jason Selk, and that's expectancy theory. He also calls it the theory of dominant thought. So expectancy theory, dominant thought, states that whatever you focus on expands. If you're focusing on a problem, that problem gets worse. It, it expands. If, if you're focusing on it in a negative way, it becomes your dominant thought. Uh, he says, too many people visualize what they don't want to happen instead of what they do want to happen. So if you're going into a marathon and you, you decided to go, I mean, you're at the starting line and you feel this little twinge of pain in your knee, what should you do? Obsess about it mile after mile, <laughs> right? Change your running form. No, <laughs> just ignore it. Shift your thoughts somewhere else. Don't ignore, of course, a sharp pain. But if it's just something a little off, a little twinge, it's probably wiser not to give much thought to it if your goal is to get through the marathon. Right. Or you can acknowledge like, yes, I see you. I hear the message, knee. Thank you. I'm going to keep running this race. Just go on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't it beautiful here? Look at that tree. Wow, look at that mountain. There's so many other things you can just shift your focus on. So visualize the things that you do want the version of reality that you want to inhabit, the person that you want to become. It reminded me of what Dina Castor told us and also what she talks about in her book, which is called Let Your Mind Run. Yeah, she talks about working with Dr. Jonathan Brower, who was a psychologist. And Dr. Brower worked with her running team through a visualization exercise where they visualized running in the mountains. And at the end of the exercise, Dina was actually sweating. Wow. (laughs) Dr. Brower told them, quote, the mind doesn't distinguish between facts and fiction. What the mind sees and thinks, the body feels. And what the body feels, the mind, or at least the subconscious, learns. And so Dina goes on to say in her book, quote, seeing myself as a champion prompted me to think and therefore act more like one. I was already living an athlete's life and giving my all in each workout. Affirmations, visualization, and musical associations were for me layers of reinforcement in my self-belief. And that led Dina to one of her main mantras, which I love. Her mantra is, find a thought that serves you better. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to say. So talking about running, specifically long-distance running is self-leadership. There are ways to influence your mind, and I hope that was helpful. Next, we want to talk about influencing your heart or uh, in other words, your emotions. But first, big thanks to Tonry Outdoors. We're so excited to have this company as a sponsor. They make sunscreen for runners. And this is a company started by runners. They know what we need. And they know we spend a lot of time outdoors in the sun. And it's so important to protect our skin. I know Angie is something you've been preaching for a long time. 
Yeah, that's right. I think we often don't realize how much we are soaking up during our runs, even if it's shaded. It's so important to protect yourself with sunscreen and a sunscreen that is going to, of course, be non-toxic. Yeah. And one thing we like about tonnery is that it doesn't have phthalates, parabens, or, or artificial fragrances. And their lip balm scents come from organic essential oils. And their sunscreen and lip balms are water and sweat resistant for up to 80 minutes. So that's a great feature as well. You don't have to be applying it every 30 minutes, even if you're a heavy sweater. That's right. We're taking it with us. During our travels this summer, I'll be wearing it at the marathon I'm running. Check them out, tonry.com. That's T-A-N-R-I. Just go to tonry.com. Thanks also to the Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia. We are going to be there this November. Uh, It takes place November 12th. They've got a full marathon, a half marathon, an 8K. Phenomenal course support. Great scenery. I was there last year. The fall colors were just popping. This is their 45th year. Uh, it's a nonprofit. They do a great job. And it's a top 25 Boston qualifier. And Angie has heard me rave about it so much, she decided she'd sign up for the marathon. That's right. I'm really excited about being there. Um, I've heard about the mostly flat course. And what is great if you've run a number of marathons is that there is a downhill finish right at the riverfront. I always wonder why races have uphills in the last <laughs> mile. So Richmond's doing it right. They've got a downhill finish. Um, at a beautiful spot at the riverfront. Yep, sign up at richmondmarathon.org. Be sure you beat the July 1st price increase. That's richmondmarathon.org. If you're running it, let us know. We'd love to meet up with you. We're going to plan something after the marathon. richmondmarathon.org. All right, so we're talking about running as self-leadership, how to influence your emotions. This is part two. There's something called emotion spotting that I have found so useful. And we we talked about this in a previous episode about running and emotional intelligence. In the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, they write that only 36% of people that they tested were able to accurately identify emotions as they happened. We can all feel the emotions, but a lot of times we don't step back and think, all right, what exactly am I feeling? What's the word I could label it with? So emotion spotting, that is just identifying and labeling your emotions, helps your rational brain take power back from the emotional brain. One of the best ways you can do this is by using an emotions chart. So as I was investigating this, I'm, I'm sort of a new uh, real estate investor. I've got a multifamily building that I bought last year, and we had a pipe break in the wall. So the tenant goes in and sees like steam coming out of the light switch which shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so they call the property manager, you know, big problem. They call me. So there's a pipe busted and water is just like flowing into the walls. Now that sounds like a nightmare, right? Just it's going to be mold. And at that moment, I just felt powerless, just powerless. Like here I am. Am I destined to fail as a property owner? You know, this is my first rental. Maybe I'm just not cut out for it. I was frustrated. I'm like, man, this building's old. Everything in our town is like 100 years old. So. At least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can start to catastrophize and think, you know, like, oh, the whole building's going to start crumbling, you know, because this pipe is going bad. It's easy to think like everything yeah. is going to go wrong. Exactly. We just remodeled that unit. So I just had to stop, look at how I was feeling and choose the appropriate words. And the words I chose were powerless and frustrated. And as soon as I did that, see, my rational brain had to think about what I was feeling. And just the act of doing that, I saw myself calm down, like sort of the intensity of emotions 
subsided and I was able to think about the solution. And of course, uh, we got it fixed, you know, it cost me some money, but uh, it's all good. The pipes are stronger than they ever were. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have to replace every pipe in the building and we'll be all right. <laughs> so how can you use emotion spotting when you're out there running? If you feel the emotion, put a label on it, put a name to it, and just see how that in real time helps your rational brain take over. Yeah, it's a lot more effective than treating your feelings as bad or good, actually giving them a specific label instead of just having a category of bad emotions and good emotions. Yeah, that's right. It's perfectly normal to feel discouraged when your run doesn't go well. And uh, the key is to realize that your emotional highs and lows are just part of your journey as a runner. It doesn't mean you're bad or good or that they are bad or good. It's just information. An excellent book that I really enjoyed is called Permission to Feel. And the author Mark Brackett writes, quote, emotional regulation is not about not feeling. Neither is it exerting tight control over what we feel. And it's not about banishing negative emotions and feeling only positive ones. A rather emotion regulation starts with giving ourselves and others the permission to own our feelings, all of them. Yeah, we got to avoid self-judgment when things are not going well and move into self-compassion. So Angie, you've been running for a long time and have pursued big goals. You know, you did your 50 states, you qualified for Boston and ran it, but I'm sure you've had plenty of negative emotions about your running. What caused it and, and how did you handle it? Well, if I'm going to be honest, I think for many years, I just denied the emotions that I didn't want to be feeling like, quote unquote, the bad emotions. And I pressed on regardless, which isn't a healthy way to approach it. Um, Now that I am learning more about emotional regulation and self-compassion, I still have negative emotions about my running, but I choose to acknowledge the emotion and then give myself positive feedback, much like I do to a friend. Um, Often we talk to ourselves way worse than we talk to someone who we care about. Yeah. And that only continues a negative cycle. So for example, this week I was out running on a warm day and we live in an area with a lot of hills and I was just not doing well in the heat, (laughs) put it that way. And so I slowed to walk on a hill and my immediate reaction was condemning myself for being weak, but I caught myself right away. And I, instead I said, it's okay, Angie, just let your heart rate come down a little. And actually talking to yourself in the third person facilitates emotional regulation. Huh. So I just I'll have to try that. I told myself, it's okay, Angie. Just walk a little bit. There's no shame in walking. You're doing fine. And sure enough, I got to the top of the hill, pressed on running strong, left that whole incident behind. If I hadn't caught that emotional spiral before diving deep into it, it could have just kept me in a bad headspace during the rest of my run. Yeah. So I, I've heard you say that you don't do well in the heat. Is that a result of knowing yourself? Or do you think it's kind of maybe a narrative that you've been telling yourself because you've had difficult runs in the heat, but maybe it's not completely true. Maybe you could one day become a better hot weather runner. Yeah, I'm sure if I lived consistently in hot weather and just really decided I was going to embrace it, that over time I would adapt and I would get stronger mentally and physically. Um, I do think that some people have a harder time in the heat, like... Mm -hmm. The cold doesn't bother me for the most part. And I know people who in the cold, they really struggle with their running and they prefer a warmer temperature. She's from Montana. Can I just hear you say the cold never bothered me anyway? No. (laughs) You know where that's from? Yes. She doesn't perform on command. (laughs) Not a trained seal. 
So another way to influence your emotions as a long distance runner is knowing why you're doing it. So there's a, a pretty interesting TED Talk out there by Andrew Stanton. He is a Oscar-winning filmmaker behind a lot of the Pixar classics, Toy Story and so forth. And the talk is called Clues to a Great Story. He says, all well-drawn characters have a spine. And the idea is that the character has an inner motor, a dominant unconscious goal that they're striving for, an itch that they can't scratch. For example, Wally wanted to find beauty. And, and Marlin, the father of Finding Nemo, his goal was to prevent harm. And Woody from Toy Story wanted to do what was best for his child. So these dominant motors, these inner motors, drove these characters, gave them a spine, helped them overcome the challenges that came their way in the, in the film. And he says the same is true for you and me. We have a spine. We have something that drives us. It could be a set of values or a way of seeing the world. It could be a goal we want to reach. Deep within all of us, something pushes us to do things we do and behave the way that we behave. Like an engine propels a car forward, motivation drives what we do. So it's important for us to identify what is our, our dominant unconscious goal. Like why are we doing this? Why are we running marathons? Is there an itch that we're trying to scratch? And if you ask yourself that question, you'll find out that it goes pretty deep. I found that for myself, the most important value underneath my running is uh, freedom. So I like to run. I mean, I don't like love it as much as Angie does, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do love it. And uh, it's because I like the freedom that it brings, you know, the ability to explore, to push the limits, to connect with nature, to have a strong enough body to get up the mountain and back. And also running's given me the opportunity to travel the world and meet interesting people, have mobility and good health. So since freedom is my dominant inner motor, my unconscious goal, the more I connect with that, stopping to remember the big why of your unconscious goal will help you not to get disappointed about a bad day. And it also helps take our ego out of the equation because I'm not running marathons to win. No one's paying me to do it. I'm not trying to do it to impress others. Uh, I think the second marathon I ever ran, my mantra was, don't let your wife think you're a wimp, <laughs> which was kind of a joke. <laughs> but yeah, I think this marathon I'm going to do in France, my A goal is to not finish dead freaking last. My B goal is to not DNF. And my C goal is to not die. Wow, you've really set the bar high. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Now I just want to have fun. So what's driving you? Is that rhetorical or are you asking me? <laughs> no, I think it's, it's a good question because I, when I started running, it was to lose weight. But I quickly realized that I needed a deeper reason. That is not going to keep you doing hard things. Because sometimes you can gain weight. Exactly. And sometimes you need to gain weight. <laughs> when I trained for my first marathon in 2008, I needed a change in my life. And that is kind of what became the basis and tagline for our podcast. You have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. And as I've, I continued on this running journey, I think what drives me is the pursuit of beauty. And I'm not talking about physical beauty at mm. all. I just love being able to be out in nature, to notice just little things like a beautiful clump of wildflowers or seeing a mountain covered in trees or a blue sky. Or today I was running past this little pond and there was this tiny little muskrat and he was like chilling in the grass. And then he saw me, and he like stood up and he took like this flying leap into the pond. And it's huh. like, those are just little moments of beauty yeah. and connection with nature. And, you know, sometimes it's like enjoying the beauty of a song that you're listening to while you're out there or like a beautiful thought that pops into your head. 
sometimes we tend to philosophize when you're running and sometimes I have my best ideas out there. And I think like, wow, if I wasn't a runner, I would be missing out on so many of these opportunities. Yeah, the last marathon I ran was uh, last year and I had the chance to go to Italy and run in the Italian Alps, the Dolomites. And uh, I knew it would be hard. There there was like 9,000 feet of elevation change. It was brutal. But as I was climbing above the Bolzano Valley, I'm looking across, there's these green mountain pastures, these jagged dolomites. And like you were saying, I was I was captured with this sense of beauty and just wonder. Oh, it's easy when you're in a place like that. I didn't see any muskrats, though, jumping into ponds. <laughs> but I thought to myself, this is why I came here. This is it. Yeah. Like, I just felt free. And I knew it would be hard and it was grueling, but I felt so good accomplishing that, too. And even if you're running maybe in an area where it's hard to find beauty or you're doing a race like in a city and you're not like surrounded by the Alps, um, (laughs) there is still beauty to be found in human endeavor, like looking around you, seeing people who maybe look like unlikely marathoners and knowing like how much people are overcoming to be out there and just accomplishing hard things. I think there's a beauty in that struggle. That's right. Well, next we want to talk about leading the body. We want to share some tricks for influencing your physical self in order to help dig deep and go the distance. Before we do that, big thanks to Inside Tracker. You know, when it comes to figuring out what's going on in your body, under the hood, so to speak, it's important to get a blood test and see where your biomarkers are at. If you haven't had a blood test in a while, check out Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker will analyze your blood, your DNA, even your fitness tracking data, and they'll identify where you're optimized and where you're not. And they provide an action plan, personal guidance, and all kinds of recommendation on nutrition and supplements, what kind of foods you should eat more of. It's a brilliant system. Yeah, it can be often confusing to know what you should be implementing. Does your body need more recovery? Does it need more anti-inflammatory foods? There are just so much data that is unique to every single runner. And so I think it's really important to know exactly what's going on in your own personal body. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To do that, you just go to insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. That's insidetracker.com forward slash MTA to save 20% off their entire store. And finally, thanks to Athletic Greens. We are definitely taking Athletic Greens on the road with us this summer so we can stay healthy, especially when you're out traveling. Sometimes you're not always eating the healthiest. But thankfully, because Angie thinks ahead and orders it, we have Athletic Greens travel packs. That's right. I included some with our last couple of orders so that we would have enough to help us feel good because one tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. And this is something that our 11-year-old son upstairs was just taking this morning. So it's always really encouraging to know that he is doing something good for his health. I don't make him take it. He just does it because it actually tastes good for a green drink. Cover all the bases with one healthy drink, just a scoop a day. See why we love it? Get five free travel packs and a one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA, athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. All right, so now we're going to talk about leading the body in our conversation around running as self-leadership. The first point we want to discuss is uh, this idea of leaning into discomfort. 
purposely seeking out discomfort and challenges. It reminds me of this uh, thing I saw on the internet floating around. It was Ernest Shackleton's classified ad when he was going to sail to the South Pole. And, you know, the Shackleton story is just amazing. You know, their ship got stuck in the ice and they had to go for miles and miles across the ice. And he was a great leader and all the men survived. But the classified ad (laughs) when he was getting his crew together read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. So there you go. I don't think I would have replied to that ad. But But he got lots of replies. (laughs) Yeah, he got the kind of guys that he needed to find. So as long distance runners, we are purposely choosing to do hard things, putting ourselves in that process, building up our immunity toward obstacles I mean, if you've run a marathon, it's not such a big deal if you have to take the stairs, right? (laughs) Right. Park in the back of the parking lot. I remember I was out with my family one time and I was with my parents and our youngest son and he was, he was even younger back then. And we were uh, doing a swamp tour in Louisiana and we were, we were walking on this boardwalk and we walked a couple miles and then everyone was hot and tired and they had their sandals on and, you know, people don't want to walk back. So... I just said, oh, I'll just go get the car. And they're like, are you sure? It's like two miles away. I'm like, yeah, I'll just run there. <laughs> two miles is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I just ran and got the car. I mean, who does that? <laughs> Runners. <laughs> Runners are always thinking, you know, you see a sign like a town is you know, 13 miles away. And you're like, yeah, I could run there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So the goal is to teach yourself that there's magic in the misery and that choosing to toughen up your body through doing hard things is an act of self-leadership and growth. That's the beauty of running a marathon. That's why we say it's life-changing because it does force all of the aspects we've been talking about. You get, you're going to get mentally stronger. You're going to learn about emotional regulation and you're going to get physically tougher. I think signing up for a marathon is like a forced self-development program. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're choosing to put yourself in process. And when we talk about lean into discomfort, think about when the real marathon starts. I mean, if you've done some already, you know, it can be kind of fun. You know, the first half, you've run a half marathon before, there's excitement. And then once you start getting past, I don't know, mile 15, you're getting a little more concerned. You know, you get up there around mile 18, 19, 20, and it starts to hurt. Just tell yourself, this is what I came here for. Everything else was just prelude to this. This is where the marathon starts. Feel that lactic acid in your legs. Feel the weariness, the temptation to walk. Now you're running a marathon. And ask yourself, what does the discomfort have to teach me today? Yeah, I think we often learn the most through challenging situations. Although, you know, I wish we could learn the same way through positive and those highs in life. It's often through the challenges and the discomfort that we really learn what we're made of. And you find that hidden depth within your own spirit. So do you remember a time when you had to go like deep into the pain cave? (laughs) Many times. (laughs) I think the example that comes immediately to mind was my 50 miler in 2020. And about halfway through, my hamstrings cramped up. And every step was agony, whether I was running or walking. Man, It was like one of those progressive cramping that just keeps getting worse, not better. It was one of those things that I could ignore and it would go away. It was kind of the discomfort where you're suppressing a groan of pain at every step. (laughs) In fact, there were some times when I wasn't around people and I just kind of let myself like, oh, oh." (laughs) Oh, man. But I'm stubborn and I finished. Did it give you a new relationship to pain? 
I think so, because at the time you just think this is unendurable. I have 20 more miles of this and this completely sucks. (laughs) And that's not to say that, you know, there are certain types of pain you should not push through. And I think there is a special strength to know when to quit. But also when you have been through that and you know that your body can take a lot and you kind of go beyond that point where you want to quit, it kind of raises the bar of what you feel like you can endure. So here's another interesting phenomenon, and that's uh, the power of body language and how it affects the brain. So there's a body language researcher named Amy Cuddy, and she argues that if you assume a power pose, like picture Wonder Woman with her hands on her hips, confidently standing there, just assuming that pose will make you feel more confident. Your body assumes the pose and your brain wants to be in sync. Like we always want to be in sync so that sometimes if we slouch, we get tired. You know, your brain's like, oh, we're we're taking a nap now? Okay. (laughs) I love to read, but at night, I just want to lay on the couch and read. I don't want to sit in a chair. So I'll bring my book over to the couch and I know how it's going to go. I'm going to get like five pages in and fall asleep. Because my body is telling my brain, hey, it's time to sleep now. Well, it's actually one reason that I'm standing right now as we're recording. Because for me, standing gives me more energy and clarity of thought. Whereas if I'm sitting, I just kind of feel tired. I start yawning a lot or yawning more than I normally do. (laughs) So this is something that biohackers talk about constantly, right? Trying to perfectly hack your environment to affect your success. So here's a simple idea. If you want to improve your mood, go for a walk or go for a run. It's amazing how that works. That's right. And there's special power of being out in nature while you exercise. Yeah. Um, Thinking about forest bathing or just being outside. And there's something about breathing fresh air and seeing greenery that really does something healing to your brain. Yeah. So self-leadership of the body is the art of bringing your body into alignment with your goals your values, and your vision. I watched a Netflix documentary one time called I Am Not Your Guru, and it was was about Tony Robbins. And it showed Tony Robbins, you know, the, the motivational speaker, behind stage before he goes out through the curtain and there's like thousands of people and he's gotta bring high energy. It's all about high energy. So he's backstage and his team set up a mini trampoline, something they just travel with. So he's like jumping up and down on this mini trampoline to get his energy up. And he does that before he goes out there to uh, give his talk. Cool idea. Maybe we need to try that before we record. We have a big trampoline. Our kids (laughs) go outside, jump on the trampoline. I get a neck injury, (laughs) but we have high energy. (laughs) That's right. You know, another hack. I mean, I barely do any of these biohacker hacks, but one thing I have been doing is turning the shower on cold before I get out. You want your brain to kind of wake up. A little spritz there of cold water at the end does affect your physical state and your mental state. And if you can get up to three minutes of a cold shower, there's like several physiological benefits, lower inflammation and just a, a whole host of things, even improvements in mental health. Now that's crazy talk. Three minutes. <laughs> you do that? I have done it before. A couple summers ago, I was just feeling pretty like low mood, you know, borderline depressed and just like needed something to kind of shock me out of that. And so I started doing cold therapy at the end of my warm showers, you know, get clean and then turn the cold water on and worked myself up to at least three minutes of doing that. 
And it was not pleasant. I totally agree with you there, Trevor. <laughs> but it, it is something about how it kind of flips a switch in your brain. When you get out, you just can't help but feeling more alert and just a little bit more stimulated about life. Good stuff. So the final point we want to talk about is the importance of having a physical practice. Uh, we had Brad Stolberg on the podcast last year when his book came out, uh, The Practice of Groundedness. And I really enjoyed how he framed it. He talked about viewing your running, or it could be any exercise you do, having a physical practice. What does that mean exactly, Angie? Well, he says in his book that movement promotes generalized well-being, strength, and stability, not just in body, but in mind, like we've been talking about. And it requires getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So Stolberg's golden rule is this. He says, move your body often, sometimes hard, Every bit counts. So I thought that's a pretty good mantra to keep in mind. And to do this, he recommends treating running as a physical practice, something integral to your day and your week. And some of his practical suggestions include taking regular movement breaks during your day, maybe especially if you have a job where you do a lot of sitting, scheduling your runs and your workouts on your calendar, kind of like making that promise to yourself, remembering that the best time to run is the time you'll stick to. There's not one particular time that works best for everyone. And then also remembering that an imperfect something is better than the perfect nothing. Sometimes we hold ourselves to these really high standards, like if I can't get out for five miles, then it's not worth getting out at all. Whereas getting out for even a mile or two might be just what you need to, you know, give yourself that boost and help yourself stay consistent. Some people choose to train for a marathon and it's just a bucket list thing. They're one and done and that's totally fine. I think though that a lot of people listen to this podcast and, and we ourselves, we want to be runners for life and make this a lifelong physical practice, which means you got to have balance. And Angie, I know that for people who are type A, um, like do everything on the training plan, sometimes more like you. Uh, maybe it's hard to take a rest day. It's hard to taper. This could jeopardize your long-term goal of being a runner until you're, you know, into your 80s, right? Because sometimes you can drive yourself too hard and risk burning out or overtraining. That's right. Yeah, this can be tough because the mentality often is if some running or whatever the workout is, is good, then more is always better. <laughs> and I have that tendency sometimes falling into the trap of thinking that more progress will be obtained through running more miles per week or more days per week and always setting that bar higher and higher and higher. And there's you know a way to do this safely by progressing and then taking step back weeks and recovery and you know building slowly and gradually. But often people don't want to take those step back weeks. They don't want to build in that recovery because it feels like they're not making progress. And that's why it can be so helpful for type A people and even people who struggle with motivation, you know, type B people to hire a coach because they can really help you progress safely and dial in the training for your body so that you can get the most out of yourself without burning out, without um, falling into the trap of maybe getting injured as much. And the truth is that you can only benefit from your runs or other workouts to the extent that you can recover from them. And this is different for each person based on your genetics, your experience level, your age, your overall health, other stressors in your life, and much more. So I would encourage you, if you have trouble taking one rest day a week, that you're not doing yourself any favors and you could actually be hindering your own progress. 
So sometimes it's good just to have that outside person, like a coach who can come alongside you and maybe see your weak areas and see the ways where you're getting in your own way and help you overcome those barriers so that you can ultimately reach the goals in a safe and healthy and effective way. Yeah. So conclusion, we think that running a marathon is like a forced self-development program. You're going to become better at leading your mind, heart, and body toward the vision that you have for yourself, the person that you want to be a year from now. And it starts with just committing to a process, taking the plunge. Um, Angie said that she was surprised that I signed up for my first marathon because my half marathon was inglorious. <laughs> it was okay. I think I finished. You did great. Yeah, I finished in 204, I think. But my thoughts at the time were, how in the world can I do two of these in a row? Like, how could I double this distance? That doesn't seem real. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had that thought as an experienced marathoner, feeling envious of the people who were veering off to the half marathon finish line and thinking, I have to do all this again. (laughs) So that's a very normal thought. It's just one of those things you have to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. I decided to take the plunge. And when I took the plunge, I knew it was committing myself to a process. And that when I came out at the other end, I would be a different person. So maybe you just need to take the plunge. Don't know what it is because we don't know your situation. Maybe you're right on the edge thinking if you should sign up for X thing. In the words of Shia LaBeouf, just do it. Don't (laughs) let your dreams be dreams. Do it! Just do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it! Make your dreams come true! Just do it! Some people dream of success while you're going to wake up and work hard at it. Nothing is impossible. You should get to the point where anyone else would quit, and you're not going to stop there. No, what are you waiting for? Do it! Just do it! Yes, you can! Just do it! (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for being a listener. If we can help you in any way, taking on that big challenge and becoming a better version of yourself, uh, we have coaches that'll help you and resources in the academy. Learn more when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. By the way, we also offer a free coaching consultation. So if you're a little bit unsure if coaching is the right step for you, you can talk with our head coach, Coach Nicole, who is amazing and will answer any questions you have, give you some recommendations based on where you're at with your running. MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Marathon Academy. If you found value in this podcast, please share it with a running friend. Until next time, remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Well on my way, well on my way.